0: Good evening. So over the course of this retreat so far, we've been mostly focusing on the wisdom aspect of the Buddha's teaching. So we've been developing a strong foundation of sati and samadhi to help us see clearly what's happening in the body, the heart, the mind. And quite often when we really... Investigate what's going on. What we see are various kinds of unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, suffering, dukkha that first noble truth that I spoke about a few days ago. And when sati and samadhi, mindfulness and steadiness are strong. They give us the inner resources to be able to meet that dukkha without getting swamped by it, without getting lost in it, without falling into reactivity. But for all of us, there are times here on this retreat, as well as in our daily lives, where the dukkha that's coming up is more than we have the capacity to meet. And we do get swept away into more stress, distress, suffering. So one aspect of the Buddha's teachings that I've come to appreciate more and more is that he offered us a wide range of approaches and meditation methods, including another whole set of practices known as the Four Brahma-Vihara. And I've mentioned these in passing a few times now. But these are four beautiful qualities of heart-mind. And the first one is kindness or metta, and we touched into that in that short guided meditation yesterday afternoon. And then the other three are compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And it's these four that I'd like to give a brief overview of tonight, because they're skillful qualities that we can train in, that we can cultivate through our meditation practice so that over time they become more and more the default setting of our hearts and minds. So before I go into a bit more detail about what each of them are, I just want to say something about this term Brahma-Vahara itself, because it's a difficult phrase to translate into English. The word Brahma referred originally to a kind of god that was worshipped, by the Brahmin tradition in India at the time of the Buddha. We don't really have an equivalent of Brahma in our own culture today, so it's sometimes translated as heaven instead. And then the term Vihara means dwelling place. So Brahma Vihara on one level literally means the dwelling place of Brahma, of the god. But it's more usually translated as divine abodes or sublime, abiding, or heavenly realm, or boundless states. And what I'd like to highlight in those various translations is this aspect of vihara, as being home. Because these four states are our true home. They're a refuge for our hearts and minds. And when our hearts and minds are not assailed by stress, distress, and difficulty, This is where we naturally abide, where we naturally dwell. And there's a sense of ease there, just as there is in our actual homes. Our homes are a place where we can feel relaxed and comfortable on who we truly are. So the second aspect of the term Brahma that I'd like to highlight is the quality of boundlessness. So sometimes these four qualities are also referred to as the four immeasurables. The idea being that we can cultivate them so fully that they become completely unlimited, completely unconditional, which is a pretty high bar. So just before that starts to reinforce any pre-existing conditions of inadequacy, remembering that these are practices, and we start where we are. And we need to have patience to let these different flavors of love gradually develop through our training in them and cultivating of them. So traditionally, this training begins with metta, because in the insight tradition, metta is the foundation that the other three develop from. And metta is a Pali word that's usually translated into English as loving-kindness. But as some scholars and teachers have pointed out, this is not such an accurate or helpful translation. Because in English, at least to some ears, loving-kindness can sound a little bit sentimental or wishy-washy. And the loving part, again in English, can be confusing because it has such a range of different meanings so we talk about loving ice cream for example which is really just a form of greed and then there's our obsession with romantic love so in popular culture and music and movies magazines and novels romantic love is usually a very exclusive kind of love it's for one person and it's emotional it's unstable. And it usually doesn't last. So in many ways, that kind of love is the opposite of metta because it is so conditional. Whereas metta, is a brahma-vihara, is a love that can be developed until it's without conditions. Unconditional. So instead of loving kindness, some people leave out the loving part and just translate metta as simple kindness goodwill, benevolence, or friendliness. Because the Pali word metta comes from the same root as tree which means friendliness. So hopefully approaching metta as a quality of friendliness, so goodwill, benevolence, might make it a bit more accessible. In fact, in some of the suttas the discourses, metta is defined as simply non-ill-will, So hopefully that lowers the bar a bit and makes it a little more attainable. We might not be able to imagine getting to unconditional loving-kindness, but non-ill will. Hopefully that's possible. So again, this is a gradual training. And especially in the beginning, we are encouraged to start with where metta might most easily arise. So for most of us, that means keeping it simple, and, natural. and in my own meta-practice recently, I found that it's sometimes easier to start with non-human beings than human beings. Because often our relationships with other human beings can be quite complex, complicated. But our relationship to animals, to birds, to fish, maybe even to insects, is usually a little more straightforward. So a couple of years ago now, I started this practice. As you know, I teach in many different centers in different parts of the world. And I started this practice of whatever country I'm in, I started to pay attention to the wildlife around that retreat center and to see if I could find different creatures that might evoke one or more of these Brahmavihara. Now, for this talk, unfortunately, I haven't been here at Staveley for long enough to really get familiar with the wildlife around here. So I'll use some examples from previous centers I've been to. But hopefully the images will resonate even so. So in many of the places that I've taught, i found that particular birds can bring up different heart responses. And when I was talking to Julie earlier, she reminded me about fantails. And I know they're there in the beech forest is always remembering some of my previous encounters with fantails at other places in New Zealand. So I'm guessing many of you have probably had that experience of just been walking through the trees and a fantail, a peewaka waka, just suddenly darts around you and it's here, and it's there, it's behind, it's alongside, it's ahead. And we know that it's drawn to the insects that are stirred up by our walking. But nevertheless, when the sun catches that little bird's fan tail and it's flitting playfully all around you, does it bring up a flicker of warmth or kindness or friendliness when you think of that experience? And if yes, that might be in the terrain of meta for you. And if not, don't worry. Maybe birds are just not your thing. Maybe some other creature is. And you might experiment with auditioning different beings to see if you can find one that naturally just brings up that flicker of metta. So metta is the foundation quality of kindness, of goodwill, of friendliness. And in these teachings, when that... Kindness at metta encounters suffering. It flowers naturally as the second Brahmavihara of compassion or karuna. And compassion is the willingness to turn towards pain, stress, distress, dukkha. To meet it with kindness and when possible to help it to release. So because of this orientation towards the relief of suffering, compassion is not simply empathy. It's not just the heart that vibrates in response to our own or others' pain. It includes that orientation to relieving that pain, if at all possible. So sometimes people ask, well, what's the difference between metta and compassion? So to me, metta is a more generalized You could say generic goodwill or friendliness. Well, compassion is more specifically oriented towards pain and suffering. So there is a close connection between the two, but energetically, compassion can feel a bit different. So to get a sense of this, I'll use another bird image, this time from here. So yesterday, some of you got involved in trying to rescue some baby sparrows that had fallen out of their nest on the roof. And as I was coming over here yesterday for the afternoon session, Sarah was holding one of those tiny injured baby birds in her hand. And another couple of people were trying to find a nest on the roof that they could put it back into. So you might imagine seeing that tiny little bird. It's pink and it's featherless. It's almost translucent. It's so vulnerable and helpless and it's just cut there in Sarah's caring hand. So you might just notice if there's a little flicker of compassion when you bring to mind that image. And if so, does it feel energetically different than meta? Just to notice. So this is part of the training of these Brahmaviharas, to be able to tune in to the body and the heart-mind, and to notice how these different flavors of love affect us. So next in the sequence of these four Brahmavihara is mudita, often translated as sympathetic joy or altruistic joy, or appreciative joy. Because traditionally, the orientation is towards sharing in other people's happiness. So it's the capacity to feel gladness when we connect with somebody else's happiness, or success, or good fortune. And of these four Brahma this one seems to be the kind of the poor cousin, And it doesn't get nearly as much attention as the others. And I wonder if that's maybe partly because in our dominant culture, with its competitive and highly individualistic values, the idea of appreciating somebody else's success perhaps doesn't quite make sense. And it's true that for many people, mudita is the most challenging of these to develop. But if we persevere, we can find that actually being able to celebrate other people's happiness brings us many benefits. Some of you might know the Dalai Lama famously said, if you can practice mudita, then you increase your chances of happiness from seven, from one to seven billion. Seven billion (laughs) being the number of people in the world. And as we do that, we start to see more clearly what at first is counterintuitive, that actually self-preoccupation is a recipe for unhappiness rather than happiness. So the Tibetan master Shantideva said, very succinctly captures this, he said, all the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come through wanting pleasure for oneself. And as we develop Mudita, we start to experience the truth of that. And our sense of separateness and isolation and lack starts to diminish. We can feel more connected to others, kinder and more generous. We stop taking our own problems so personally, And we feel the kinship of knowing that other beings want to be happy, just as we do. So to get a felt sense, perhaps, of the flavor of mudita, I'll continue with the bird examples, this time one from overseas. I quite often teach at a meditation center in the Blue Mountains in New South Wales. And on one visit there, I was just walking down the lane outside of the meditation hall, And a neighbor invited me in to look at a bowerbird nest in his front yard. So I don't know if you are familiar with bowerbirds, but they get their name because the male bowerbird spends weeks constructing a bower to attract a female mate. And these bowers are actual structures that the bird makes by weaving grasses and sticks together in a kind of a tent. And then as if that wasn't enough, the bowerbird male then makes sure the female is going to notice that bower by lining the entrance to it with all kinds of special, almost always blue objects. So you sometimes realize that you're in the vicinity of a bowerbird bower by suddenly seeing blue plastic pegs and blue plastic pen caps and blue plastic milk bottle lids and so on. And this was true of this. And as I was looking at this bower, I noticed the male bower bird was darting around in the bushes. I think he was probably worried that I might be going to steal some of his precious (laughs) blue things. The bottle caps and the rosella feathers and the drinking straws and so on. And as I looked at that array of blue plastic mandala, I did feel this sense of delight an appreciation for all of that bird's efforts that he was going to to make something beautiful for his mate. And I hope that he was successful. (laughs) Because it's a lot of effort. (laughs) But we're sticking to Mudita, so stay with the appreciation. Do you feel that? Do you feel just that flicker of lightness and delight? And does it feel different energetically from compassion or simple matter? So now we come to the fourth of the four Brahma Brahmavihara, which is upekka, usually translated as equanimity. And this isn't a very common word in English anymore. In fact, I don't think I'd ever heard of it until I started to come into contact with these teachings. So it basically means balance of mind evenness, steadiness, stability, composure. It's the capacity to meet whatever we experience, pleasant or unpleasant, delightful or painful, without falling into reactivity. And just to be clear though, this non-reactivity is not a dull or disconnected disengagement. True equanimity has a very refined and energetic quality to it. And it allows us to open to whatever presents itself without falling into wanting or not wanting. So on its deepest level, it manifests as profound acceptance and peace. And the Pali word upekka has its roots in words associated with seeing, with vision. So one literal translation of upekka is to look over, and it suggests being in the position to see the bigger picture. So it links directly to clear seeing, to insight, to the Vipassana. And sometimes I think of equanimity as being like that experience of climbing up a mountainside. And you know, if you're going on a hike and you're in the first stages, slogging through the forest and it's hard going, and you're just right in front of step-by-step and then at some point, perhaps, you get above the tree line and you get to an overlook and you suddenly see where you've come from. with a, And that change of perspective, for me, is a moment of equanimity. There's a sense of openness and spaciousness and expansiveness because I'm not locked into my own small viewpoint anymore. There's a little taste of freedom. So perhaps you're wondering what kind of bird might represent the quality of equanimity. That's a good question because it took me quite a long time to think of one. In fact, I had to ask for suggestions from other people, kind of crowdsource it. And one of the managers reminded me of the powerful owl, the Australian powerful owl. And I actually had a very beautiful photo of one of these powerful owls on my desktop. So it stares with huge, intense eyes. And as the name might suggest, it does have a very powerful presence. And I get the impression that it's very still. And it doesn't move unless it absolutely has to. But when it does move, it is extremely effective. In fact, one of the photos I saw when I was looking up about this bird, the photo was captioned, powerful owl holding the back half of a common ringtail possum. So, you might wonder or not what happened to the front half of that ringtail <laughs> possum. But right there, it's an opportunity to practice equanimity. Because that owl is acting in accordance with its nature not necessarily how we wish it to act. So perhaps we can appreciate its strength and its magnificence, and at the same time respect its nature. It is a predator, and it has its place in the bigger picture of our natural environment. So that's a very brief overview of what these four Brahma Vihara qualities are. And we'll be touching into some of them in the coming days. So for now I just wanted to say a little bit more about how all four of them are interrelated. Because we need to practice all four of them to get their full benefit. So one analogy is if you think of a piece of rope, you know, if it's just a one ply, one strand piece of rope, it doesn't have nearly as much strength as four plies all working together to strengthen each other. And together these four act as very powerful antidotes to the hindrances and to all afflictive mind states. So to get just an initial sense of how these work together, I'd like to share a way of framing it that was put together by two English Dharma teachers, Caroline Jones and Paul Burroughs. So they talk about them as four flavors of love. And they say metta, Or kindness is the love that connects. It's an antidote to all forms of aversion. It is not attachment. If it slides into sentimentality, karuna or compassion brings the heart back into balance. Karuna is the love that responds. It's an antidote to cruelty It is not pity. If it slides into sorrow, mudita, appreciative joy, brings the heart back into balance. Mudita is the love that celebrates. It's an antidote to envy. It is not competitive. If it slides into agitated excitement, upeka, equanimity, brings the heart back into balance. Upeka, the love that allows, is the antidote to partiality. It is not indifference. If it slides into disconnection, metta brings the heart back into balance. So in that description, we can get a sense of how each of the four qualities can be used to balance out an unhelpful mind state and to bring strength and reinforce the others too. So you might notice that each quality naturally slides into the next but in the end we return again to metta, to kindness. So if the last quality, equanimity, slides into disconnection, metta brings the heart back into balance. So we come full circle and we can weave around and through each of these qualities over and over again. And that spiraling journey creates a kind of force field of unconditional love. So this theme of balance that I've been emphasizing all through this retreat is woven into the Brahma themselves. And I want to highlight that balancing aspect because Not only are the four Brahmavihara not taught so much, when they are taught, there tends to be a lot of emphasis on just the first one, metta or kindness. And the other three are just often named in passing, so we don't get the full benefit of what they have to offer. The other downside of that is that because metta is given the most emphasis, It's a common tendency to think that therefore we're supposed to apply metta to every situation in our life. But in fact there are some, even many, circumstances where metta is not the most appropriate response. And one of the other Brahma might actually be the more skillful way to respond. So sometimes people will say things like, well... I've been in a custody battle with my ex-partner for the last five years. I'm trying to do meta for them, but it's just not working. And usually I'll say, "Mm, have you tried self-compassion for the pain of that? And usually they just look at me in horror because the idea of offering compassion to ourselves is for many people very alien. So I'd like to say a little more about compassion now and how it fits into this overall path of practice. In the later Buddhist tradition, this whole path is sometimes spoken of in terms of the metaphor of the two wings to awakening. And those two wings are wisdom and compassion. And we can understand very directly from that metaphor that we need both wings to be equally well-developed if we're going to metaphorically fly. So wisdom is the ability to see clearly, to develop insight, which is what we've been focusing on so far. Compassion, as I said, is that willingness to turn towards suffering, to meet it with kindness, and where possible, to help it to release And probably because we're in the nominal insight tradition, the wisdom wing of the practice for most of us has been given a lot more emphasis and less attention has been paid to the compassion wing. So for any of us, from time to time, we might do a practice review and just to check, how is that balance between wisdom and compassion? And when I've done this in my own practice at times, with hindsight, I've been able to recognize that one or the other wing had just got a little too far ahead of the other, or sometimes a lot too far ahead of the other. And that gap between them was uncomfortable and discouraging until eventually I realized what had happened and was able to strengthen the other wing to help come back to balance. So because we're in the insight tradition, it's often more common for the wisdom wing to get ahead of the compassion wing. We put a lot of emphasis on seeing clearly. And at first, our insights tend to be on a more, you could say, psychological level. So we start to recognize our own personal habit patterns and our deep-rooted conditioning and our defense strategies and so on. And it can start to feel like all of our so-called defilements are being revealed to us in vibrant, ultra-high definition. And that old joke that I shared the other day, self-knowledge is not necessarily good news. And at this stage of the practice, that can feel painfully true. But then as the practice deepens, we start to move beyond the more psychological insights and to see more clearly into what are known as the three universal characteristics that the Buddha recognized as being true of all experience. So the insight that everything is impermanent. We were touching into that insight in the relational practice this afternoon when we were noticing the constant changing of our mental state. And then because of that impermanence, it's unreliable, unsatisfactory nothing can give us lasting satisfaction this is another definition of dukkha and there is no permanent stable self to whom all this is happening and I'll come back to these three characteristics a little later on in the retreat but just to say that at first when we first start to encounter these three characteristics more clearly it can be unsettling even painful because they challenge us to let go of some very deeply held beliefs about who we are and how the world is. So at these times we might need to consciously cultivate the compassion wing for a while to help us develop a more resilient heart and mind, one that can navigate these challenges with some degree of balance. So that's just a couple of ways that the wisdom wing can get ahead of the compassion wing. On the other side, the compassion wing sometimes gets ahead of the wisdom wing. And this can happen when we start to connect more fully with the truth of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness, stress, distress, and suffering. We might start to feel our own and other people's pain so intensely that we get overwhelmed. And this is perhaps even more true these days because thanks to modern media, we don't have to look very far to find dukkha. All the misery of the world is available in our own living rooms. And that's on top of all the dukkha we're experiencing in ourselves, in our families, in our communities. So it's not surprising that at times we might fall into grief and despair. And at these times, We might need to connect back to the wisdom wing again to really see clearly the truth of impermanence. This too shall pass. Everything changes. And even dukkha comes and goes. We also can recognize that it's not personal. And it becomes possible to taste moments of deep freedom even in the midst of intense difficulty. So bringing awareness to each of these two wings of wisdom and compassion, learning how to balance them, is part of the art, the skill of this practice. So compassion is what flowers when metta turns towards suffering. But for most people, this is not the usual way we relate to dukkha. For many of us, it's totally counterintuitive to move towards suffering, not away from it. And we might even think, this isn't what I signed up for. I came here to get away from suffering. Why would I want to get closer to it? Well, one reason, I referred to the other night, there are times in life when pain or suffering is not possible to escape from. And so, as I mentioned the other night, it's good practice to start meeting small difficulties now so that we can build that compassion muscle before we really need it. So one analogy I think of in terms of being willing to turn towards pain, it's a bit like swimming in the sea when one of those monster waves appears on the horizon. And our instinct might be to turn and try and swim away from it or uh, run away from it if we can touch the ground. But usually if we do that, we end up getting slammed. On the other hand, if we can have the presence of mind and the courage to turn and face that wave and at the right moment dive under it, it might be pretty turbulent, but we usually come out the other side in better shape than if we'd been slammed into the sand. So with that analogy we can understand it does take courage to turn to suffering instead of run from it. But the more we do it, the more our capacity gets stronger. Unfortunately, though, in mainstream society, compassion, I think, is not something that's been highly valued. You could even say it feels at times like there's an epidemic of non-compassion. And perhaps because of mainstream society's tendency to towards perfectionism and competitiveness and individualism, For many people, just the idea of cultivating compassion can seem quite foreign, even threatening. So often when we first begin to try to develop compassion, we come into direct contact with all the obstacles to it. But remembering the slogan I shared the other day, if it's in the way, it is the way transforming those obstacles can become vehicles to help that compassion to deepen. So I'd like to just take a few more minutes to name some of the challenges that we often face when we try to turn in this direction. So in my own experience, the first challenge came from being completely clueless about what compassion even was. Fortunately, though, the very first Vipassana retreat that I sat was taught by teachers who put equal emphasis on wisdom and compassion. But on that first retreat, I literally didn't hear them use the word compassion. It was only when I went back for a second retreat with them, about three months later, that they suddenly started talking about compassion over and over and over again. And on that second retreat, it was like I'd been hit over the head by a sledgehammer. Something almost shattered. And suddenly compassion, I realized, was what had been missing most of my life. It had been mostly absent in my family, absent in the communities I grew up in. And before I got interested in the Dharma, pretty much absent in the friends that I chose. But on this second Vipassana retreat, I finally recognized what had been so painfully absent for all those years. And I was really excited about this discovery. So I went to the teachers and thanked them for their radical new approach to the practice. (laughs) 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 You guys are smarter than I was. And they laughed and said, actually the teaching at both retreats had been exactly the same. And it's true, those particular teachers did teach word for word the same talks on every retreat. And they even had a book of transcripts of the talk. So I was able to look in the book and see that what they were saying was true. They hadn't changed a single word. But my capacity to hear those words had changed. So initially it was as if my heart and mind didn't even have the receptors to be able to take that in. Hopefully, you get a sense from that example that we can grow these receptors. And after that second retreat, I became quite fascinated by compassion. So I just offer that story as encouragement in case any of you might be finding the idea of compassion practice challenging. So a second very common obstacle is fear. And it's true that biologically... To a certain extent, we are hardwired to avoid experiences that are painful because they potentially could be life-threatening. So it's not surprising that we might have a deep instinctual fear of moving towards difficulty instead of away from it. And there is a caveat here. So there are two wings to awakening. And the compassion does need to be supported by wisdom. So we need the clear seeing, the insight to recognize when our fear is just an old habit, just a knee-jerk reaction and when it might be a wise fear that's keeping us, us out of some kind of danger. So with practice, perhaps some degree of trial and error, we learn to distinguish between genuine compassion and what's sometimes called foolish compassion. So just briefly, one example of foolish compassion might be that common pattern of trying to help everyone with everything all of the time, which of course often ends up being harmful to us and also potentially harmful to the person we're trying to help because it can keep us stuck in patterns of enabling or codependence. So true compassion has to include we ourselves. And if we're offering compassion in a way that's harmful to us, that's a bit of a sign that it needs a bit more wisdom brought in. So wisdom helps us to know when to say no and when to say yes. And to listen to those rhythms and to recognize and to honor those times, to know when it is appropriate, at times, to withdraw, to close the heart, to protect oneself. So a few years ago on retreat, I was really feeling into this rhythm of my own heart opening and closing, and I was noticing that pressure, it should be open, it should be open, and then the resistance. So instead of that pushing, I tried to be a little more attuned. And as I was doing that, a visual image came to mind. Of a sea anemone. So do you all know what sea anemones are? Those little jelly blob creatures that live in rock pools. And when I was a child and living in Scotland, we would go on beach holidays and we would often explore the rock pools at low tide. And on the edges of these rock pools would be red and brown and orange sea anemones. And they have those translucent tentacles that Uh, would sway in the salt water. And my father showed me how if you just touch them very gently, all their tentacles retract. And they're just a smooth blob of jelly. And as a five-year-old, I thought this was totally magic. But I wanted to know why. Why do they do that? And later I found out that they do it to stay safe. But when the sea anemones' tentacles are retracted like that, they can't feed. So at some point, they have to take the risk and open up again. And I felt, well, in some ways, the human heart is like that. It alternates between periods of needing to be safe and needing to feed. And it's that vulnerability that allows us to find nourishment through contact with others. And based on what many of you were reporting from the Insight Dialogue practice this afternoon... When we can take the risk to be more fully present with ourselves, with our partner, courage develops, trust develops, and we experience that deeper befriending that I spoke of on opening night. So this process of befriending, whether it's of ourselves or another, comes from refined listening And again, exactly as we've been doing in the relational practice, listening itself is a practice of compassion because it's about tuning in, attunement, listening to our own and to others' experience. So later in the Buddhist tradition, this link between listening and compassion became more explicit in the image of Kuan Yin. This is an archetype. I think we've got one here archetype of compassion and in the zen tradition she's known as she who hears the cries of the world and in the zen tradition it said that she listens as if she had ears on every cell of her body so that's quite a striking image can you listen as if you had ears on every cell of your body And this metaphor of listening requires us to settle back and to receive. But it's not passive because out of that deep listening we know what's the appropriate response. And again, there are often images of Kuan Yin that show her in the sitting posture. And when she's sitting, it looks something like this. So in this posture, half of her body is sitting in meditation but the other half is poised and ready to act so she's combining that balance of receptivity and responsiveness so this attunement to the inner world and the outer world and in my own practice there was a significant turning point when I realized that compassion or any of the viharas are not States that we're trying to manufacture or conjure up out of nowhere—they're actually already there—and it's the act of listening out for them, learning to recognize them, that helps them to flourish. And at first, they might feel very, very faint and far away. So I sometimes, again, use the metaphor of a Hubble telescope which in my non-scientific understanding is an instrument that's scanning the universe for the faintest signs of life. And sometimes I think this practice is like turning the Hubble telescope into the deepest, darkest recesses of our hearts and listening to just that faintest flicker of kindness or compassion, appreciative joy or equanimity. And that recognition, that listening, helps it to grow. So this deep listening of Kuan Yin includes listening to our own pain equally with everyone else's. And so I've come to think of self-compassion as almost a universal solvent for working with all difficult mind states. So when painful emotions come up, if we can turn towards them with care, not only does the pain lessen, we strengthen wisdom and compassion because our capacity to be with life's difficulties grows and we start to see more clearly that those difficulties are impermanent and impersonal. And when we don't take them so personally anymore, they naturally release more quickly. And then there's almost literally more room in the heart and mind for the skillful qualities to grow, including compassion. So as the practice progresses, wisdom and compassion become inseparable. And our capacity to act for the welfare of others, as well as ourselves, grows exponentially. So may our efforts here on this retreat help us to strengthen both of these two wings of wisdom and compassion for the benefit not only of we ourselves, but of all beings, everywhere. So thank you for your attention. Let's just sit quietly for a moment or two.